0: Welcome to St. Paul's here this morning. I want to invite you, if you have a Bible in front of you, to turn to Psalm 100. That's where I'm going to land and kind of anchor down for a little while here this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, I would invite you to just grab a pew Bible that's right in front of you. That way you could follow along as well. We will get into God's Word here this morning. I think it is fitting and it's right to turn to this psalm. It is a psalm of thanksgiving, and it's at least fitting for a, a couple of reasons. There are many more, but one reason is because we are literally four days away from our holiday of thanksgiving. So we need to be reminded again as God's people to be joyful and thankful A people that sing, Or as the psalmist put, perhaps even shout when we come together and worship our God that we love. We ought not to be a people who are unthankful or ungrateful or a people who are stricken by a spirit of entitlement or presumptuousness. We not presume that we have even the next day, but by God's grace we are here. So let us be thankful. The second reason why I think it's fitting that we turn here is more for personal reasons than any other. I am uh, I'm new here, so um, Father John said this would be a treat. I don't know how much of a treat it will be. I'll let you be the judge of that after you sit here for about 30 minutes and listen to me talk. But nonetheless, I am eternally grateful for God that he has brought me to South Carolina. Um, we and my wife and my four kids, my two dogs, my cat, we have all journeyed from Kansas. And I don't know how many of you know how far that is away, but that is a long drive. We're like the Beverly Hillbillies coming across the many states to get to this foreign land called South Carolina. But we love it. We are so Grateful to be here. I love the weather, and so it's a lot warmer here than it is in Kansas at this juncture. So I always have uh, a good time kind of jabbing my Kansas brethren for how cold it is right now and how warm it is here. But God has also uh, provided us with a house to raise a family. He's provided us with another vehicle that was just given to us. He has provided me uh, just the opportunity to minister to uh, a, just a profound group of young people that um, I am just so privileged to be with on Sunday evenings and, and Wednesday evenings. They are, are truly a blessing to Jamie and I, especially myself as I'm with them. But I'm also just counting my blessings this morning because I have a new parish I have a new church home, and Jamie and I are settling into this this new environment that we call St. Paul's, and we are just so grateful to be here, and we just give God many thanks this morning for what He's doing in our lives. But yet, even with Thanksgiving, a few days away, and with an abundant of reasons to be thankful, reality is, is that we can still find it difficult To give thanks. We as God's people oftentimes don't come in here with smiles on our faces. Yet we are glum, perhaps even um, sad for what is happening in our lives. And so we sometimes find it difficult to be thankful. Or maybe even worse yet, you come in with a painted smile. You seem happy. But yet, we are not happy people. So the question may arise, why aren't we a happy people? Or why aren't we always joyful, happy, shouting, singing? What may be the causes for this? And so we are going to look at Psalm 100 this morning. But first, just a point of illustration to kind of enter into the text. Jamie and I met back in 1996 in a youth camp at Colorado. Certainly wasn't love at first sight. I was going to be entering my first year of college at Calvary Bible College in Kansas City. She was entering her junior year of college at Sterling College in Sterling, Kansas. And frankly, I, I felt in my heart that I would probably find a future wife at college. But God had other plans, as he often does. Jamie and I one day working together, sweeping sidewalks, pine needles of all things. I've seen a lot of pine needles in South Carolina, so it brings back wonderful memories for me. We're sweeping the sidewalk, pine needles, and we struck up a conversation of all things about our family. And suddenly we had all of these things in common I began to have these heartfelt affections for Jamie that simply just were not there before. And little by little in the summer of 1996, as I learned more about Jamie and her heart, my heart just fell for this young girl from western Kansas. But intuitively today, Jamie may ask the question, She may ask this question almost 17 years later, four kids later, four kids under five, mind you, later. Do you love me more today than you did then? Do you love me more than you did back in 1996? Now, gentlemen, if your wife asks you this question at any point in your marriage, you have but only one answer. Now, it may seem like there are more options, but there are, there are not. There's one answer that you give. But in all seriousness, what is Jamie asking? What's really the, the core of the question? What is it that she's searching for in our marriage? And I think it's this. Has your love grown for me over our marriage, our time together, our relationship? Has your love grown for me? Has, as you've gotten to know my heart, as you've gotten to know my tastes, my desires, my love, my wants, as you've found the real me, do you love me more? I think that's exactly what the psalmist is sounding here in Psalm 100 this morning. The psalmist is proclaiming that there must be education for exaltation. There must be a relationship with God in order to come into these courts, come into this building and worship. Or put another way, theology dictates worship. Or this is simply the message this morning that I want to proclaim. One must know God to worship God. One must know God in order to worship God. Let's see that here in Psalm 100. It's very clear. This is a psalm. So this is from the Psalter. This is a song. So there are stanzas to songs, right? When we sing the great hymns of the faith, we are singing stanzas or verses. And that's exactly what we find here. Stanza 1, verse 2. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. So in stanza 1, we see what? Exaltation. Exaltation. Shout joyfully. Serve with gladness. Come with joyful singing. This is is exaltation. This is worship that's happening. But then you get to stanza two and something happens. Namely with one word that you see right there in verse three. Know. K-N-O-W. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us not we ourselves we are his people and the sheep of his pasture see the difference that's theology that's education know something namely god so let the link between verse 2 and verse 3 just kind of sink in for a moment come before him with singing no Singing, No. Serve with gladness. No. Shout joyfully. No. In other words, the psalmist is saying this. If you're going to sing, you need to know something to base it on. If you're going to shout joyfully, know something to base it on. If you're going to serve with gladness, know something to base it on. If you're going to come to God with joyful singing, know something to base it on. In other words, the first two stanzas are exaltation based on education or what you know about God. Singing, so get this, singing based on knowing. Stanza three, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless His name. So here again we just swing back to exaltation. Enter with thanksgiving. Enter with praise. Give thanks. Bless his name. In stanza one, the exaltation took the form of joy and gladness and singing. And here the exaltation takes the form of what? Four days. Thanksgiving. And praise and blessing that. Fill our hearts. And then we come to stanza four. For the Lord is good, His loving kindness is everlasting, His faithfulness to all generations. Finally, here is theology. Here's education again. We're really learning three things about God this morning. Number one, He's good. Number two, His loving kindness is everlasting. And number three, his faithfulness endures to all generations. But notice this little word at the beginning of verse 5. Three letters, but it turns everything on its head. Four. F-O-R. Four. That one little three-letter word is a whole philosophy of education that just kind of hangs on that word. For the Lord is good. For there in the Hebrew means the goodness of God is the reason, the basis, the foundation of the exaltation in verse 4. So give thanks to him, bless his name, For, because the Lord is good, His loving kindness is everlasting, His faithfulness to all generations. One must know God to worship God. Now I could just pray and we could be done, but I'm not going to because I want to give you some practical application. And I think this is where Paul in the New Testament will help us. So we're not Old Testament believers. We're New Testament believers, right? We're part of the New Covenant. And so Paul and Jesus talk a lot about worship in the New Testament. And so if you want to just flip over to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 and following, that's where we're going to just kind of apply God's Word or Psalm 100 to our lives. Because Romans speaks into what we just learned in Psalm 100. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1 and following, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual what? Worship. Worship. In my translation, it's worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed. So what needs transforming? Renewing of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, so Paul here in Romans 12 brings what to the table? Worship. And so here's some practical application that come right out of Romans 12 that's going to help us with Psalm 100. Number 1, there's three. going to give you number 1, here it is. Worship has been delocalized. Worship has been delocalized. Psalm 100 gives this picture of entering the temple, right? Enter into the gates Come into his courts with praise. Right? So we're entering the temple. Unfortunately, I've been to Jerusalem. It's not there anymore. It's gone. Romans destroyed it. So we we have no temple. Right? And so the temple was localized in Jerusalem, but it's no longer there. So in the New Testament, what happens? Well, Jesus turns everything on its head. It's a great story about Jesus and a Samaritan woman, right? They meet at a well, one hot, sticky, South Carolinian day. It's humid. Jesus is thirsty, meets the Samaritan woman. And the discussion turns to worship, amazingly. But it turns to worship because the Samaritan woman is wanting to deflect Jesus' prophetic probing of her issues, her problems, right? She has real problems. She's an adulteress. She's sleeping with many men. And Jesus is probing that. But she wants to deflect the whole issue by talking about worship. So even on the topic of worship, she is struck with what? The external. She wants to talk about where? Where? Our fathers, she said, worshiped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. But you say that Jerusalem is the place we ought to worship. Jesus is willing to go with her on this topic, but he's not willing to let her limit the issue to location. We'll press into the heart of the matter. So he says to her, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Will you worship the Father? Mountains are irrelevant to worship. So Jesus starts with this denial a negation. You wonder about where. And you're concerned about location. Ma'am, there's a day coming sooner than you think. When both these mountains will be irrelevant for worship. And that's amazing for a Jew to say, especially coming out of the mouth of Jesus. The day is coming, he says, when Jerusalem, right, the holy city, the city of David, the place with the temple of God, will not be the focus of true worship. This certainly wasn't the answer that she's expecting. She expected a good argument from a good Jew to defend Jerusalem as the focal point of worship. But Jesus rejects the whole argument. Instead, he says, we are on the brink of something new. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship God. Brothers and sisters, the hour has come. It's here. The temple is no longer in Jerusalem. The temple where God resides is you and me. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in what? You. First Corinthians 6.19. So Paul says what? Present your bodies. Present your temple. Worship is you. Worship happens everywhere. It doesn't just happen in here at 1045. Worship can happen at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning or Tuesday evening with your family. Worship is everywhere because you are now the temple. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and an example. Worship has been delocalized. Number 2. Worship is not worship is not a transfa- transformation of just the external. Worship is not a transformation of just the external. I point this out for one reason, and it's to make the point that nonconformity to the world does not primarily mean the external avoidance of worldly behaviors. There's no doubt that that's included, right? There are certain things in this world that we just ought not to do but here's the point you can avoid all kinds of worldly behaviors and not be transformed by the power of jesus christ there are there are good people that fill the pews across america every morning that are here in this passage and they look great but they haven't been internally changed by Christ, their hearts are still hardened. Jesus, if you remember, rebukes the Pharisees, calls them what? Your whitewashed tombs. What was he saying? You look great on the outside, you got it all down, but your hearts are far from me. In other words, I think what I could have done this morning in this task of preaching the sacrament of the word is said, you know, worship God, read your Bible more, and find more quiet time and find a small group. And we could have prayed and been done. And those are all great things to do. But listen, if you're here this morning and you just kind of have this checklist, That you're just marking off, okay, done it, good, got that. It's not good. Transformation is not switching from the to-do list of the flesh to the to-do list of the law. When Paul replaces the list of the works of the flesh, he does not replace it with works of the law, but of the fruit of the Spirit. God. The Christian alternative to moral behavior is not a new list of moral behaviors. So what is it? It's this. It's the triumphant power and transformation of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, your treasure and mine. God has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills. But the Spirit gives life, 2 Corinthians 3.6. So transformation is a profound, blood-bought, Spirit-wrought change from the inside out. And all to say, brothers and sisters, this is my plea, is worship happens when we're transformed from the heart. This is the problem with many parents today. We like to put little good little red apples on bad little trees when what they need is the gospel. Worship has been delocalized. Worship is not a transformation of just the external. And lastly, worship happens when our minds are renewed. Right? Paul, again, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.